So it was looking at my own health and my own diet at university, drinking too much, playing football, trying to manage a degree, going to the gym, and I sat down to speak to different people about my diet and what I actually need to supplement with. And the more research I did into amino acids, I found that it's actually great for the immune system, it's great for digestion, it's great for cognitive health. And why is this not being done before? And that's how it started probably back in 2007. I think for a brand like ours, launching innovation, you've kind of got to find an area of the market where it sticks. So yeah, great, if you can launch in somewhere that's, that's enormous straight away, fantastic. Yeah. But realistically, you've got one bullet in the gun. If you go out to the market with your, your taste tests and you start going after focus groups, you don't necessarily get what the brain's saying, you get what the mouth's trying to think that the brain's saying. And from a point of sale perspective, actually if something tastes great in a focus group, in a room on its own, how's that actually gonna sell on shelf? People wanted innovation. There was a lack of products innovating and that allowed us to go in there and offer something different. Our eating habits are changing. We're demanding better dining experiences and the food market has never been so competitive. Starting and succeeding with a food business is challenging, but some determined and passionate entrepreneurs are flourishing. These people have big dreams, big passion, and big drive. They are disruptors, change makers, and innovators. They see a positive future. Many say that food business is too risky. Some say that it has huge rewards. Are you up for the challenge? This is Food Motion. I am Peter Farrell. My guest today is Chris Ingham, founder and CEO of Rejuvenation Water. Launched in 2016, Rejuvenation Water was the world's first amino acid enriched spring water. Shortly after launch, the Apple and Mint Water was awarded a Great Taste Award and the drinks are now selling in, in over 1,000 stockists in the UK and internationally. Rejuvenation Water was named in the top 50 UK disruptive companies of 2017 and Chris has been shortlisted for New Entrepreneur of the Year in the National Business Awards in addition to the Inspiring Entrepreneur of the Year in the Startup Awards. Chris, welcome to Food Motion. Hi, thanks for having me. So I know you're a northern lad, grew up in Lancaster. How did that shape your entrepreneurial mindset? And do you have any kind of early entrepreneurial memories? Well, I grew up in Yorkshire to start with. I went to the University at Lancaster. Aha, okay. All synonymous with, with the North anyway. Sure. Um, but I, I kind of spent a lot of my time growing up on my grandparents' farm. And that kind of built, without even realizing, it kind of built in a work ethic into me, but also that kind of entrepreneurial side of things where you, you have to make ends meet, you have to go out there and work for yourself. So that's kind of like developed into my DNA from like a very early age. <coughs> I used to do a milk round with my granddad from like the age of seven. So every time I was on school holidays, it's going out there, getting up really early, going to work, getting back to bed, going out to work again. For, for me, I enjoyed it and didn't really see it as work. And that's kind of what, how I've approached entrepreneurialism in that sense as well. Okay, very good. Um, and then I know you moved to London, worked in the financial services sector, so you're there for 10 years or so. Um, what attracted you to that sector in the first place? Well, I think having an economics degree, it's kind of going almost like to a cliche, following the same kind of channel that everyone else has followed after that kind of regard. I had the idea for rejuvenation when I was at university, but if you rewind back to 2007, there wasn't really the stepping stones and the clear kind of guided path to go into, into entrepreneurialism and starting a business. Uh, for, for, from a drinks perspective as well, there wasn't the innovation, there wasn't veganism, there wasn't 
you think about innovation back then, it probably looks at something like vitamin water or cherry cola, which was kind of groundbreaking for the, for the industry then. If they launched something like rejuvenation water back in 2007, I just don't think the infrastructure and the demand for something like that would have been in place to start with. Okay. Naturally being good with numbers, always had an interest in finance on that side of things. That kind of pulled through for me. Um, applied for a job at, on a graduate scheme in a treasury department once upon a time at Nationwide. Got the job and that kind of set that off. I was always working around the idea of, of rejuvenation water. But without being a food scientist, it's more like looking at the science behind it. Why has nobody done this before? When it, for me, it was kind of a, a glaring thing to bring amino acids. That's a functional kind of ingredient to the market that hasn't been done before. But it was kind of going through the stepping stones and understanding why it hasn't been done before. Can it be done? Is there a demand for something like this? And I'm working on the concept on the side as well at the same time. Okay. And what gave you the inspiration or the idea for rejuvenation water in the first place? So it was looking at my own health and my own diet at university, drinking too much, playing football, trying to manage a degree, going to the gym. And I sat down to speak to different people about my diet and what I actually need to supplement with. And this is a time when whey protein was, was prevalent. Everybody was taking this extra supplements here, there and everywhere. And when I started breaking it down and looking at what I needed to get from my diet, somebody on numerous occasions mentioned amino acids and that was all built around recovery after you work out, recovery after you play football. And the more research I did into amino acids, I found that it's actually great for your immune system, it's great for digestion, it's great for cognitive health. And it was much more functional than the more pre prevalent proteins or prevalent vitamins at the time. And that was a kind of, okay, why is this not being done before? and that's how it started probably back in 2007. It was then, okay, is there something blindingly obvious that there's a reason that someone's not done this before? Is it a stability thing? At the time, they wasn't even ready to drink protein shakes on the shelf. So maybe there, there was something that food science hasn't quite caught up with. Uh, but the more pe people I spoke about it to in, in the industry, there was nothing that, that suggested it couldn't be done. So tell us a little bit about rejuvenation water and what in particular is your USP? So rejuvenation water, it was all around amino acids. It's kind of like a functional ingredient that's similar to a vitamin that's kind of been bypassed by the popularity of vitamin over five to 10 years. And for me, comparing us to a protein, we are the building blocks of protein. So when you actually take protein, it gets broken down into amino acids and it's that that, that gets transported to the, around the body. And for me, it's like the purest form of protein that you can get from that kind of perspective, but also the functional side of things. It fuels your immune system. It's great for digestion. It's great for cognitive health. It's much more in line with the needs and lifestyle of day-to-day -day people rather than like elite athletes, which focus much more on protein and the amount of protein you get rather than natural quality of the protein you're going to get there as well. Okay, very good. Okay, um, you mentioned you had the idea first whilst you were in university. Was it a conscious decision to hold off until the market was ready? Or was it just taking that time to kind of research and develop the idea? I think a bit of both. I don't think the infrastructure was in place back then. Like an entrepreneur was Richard Branson and it was kind of like, right, great, how do you get there? Because there is no middle piece. Mm. There was no Innocent. I think Innocent had probably just been in its very fledgling years back in 2007. So there was no kind of well-trodden path to be able to get into that. There was no social media. Well, there was social media, but not to the extent where you can actually compete with the big brands like you can today. Mm -hmm. So even then, the market, the the public perception and innovation was nowhere near what it is today. It was kind of like a perfect storm launching it around 2016. If you compare that to the market in 2007, it was chalk and cheese, really. Okay. So you were developing the idea whilst you were working full-time in the financial sector. At what stage did you think, well, this is a runner and has potential, 
And at what stage then did you decide to leave full-time employment and to come over to this full-time? So I had a, I had a cancer scare back in 2013. And bearing in mind, I've probably been working on the idea for like seven or eight years by that point already. It was kind of like, why should I do it? It, it was trying to find that moment of perspective that I needed to say, actually, right, let's, let's jump into this. Luckily, the cancer scare came back all clear, but being sat in like a cancer ward for like three hours on any given day, surrounded by these people that might be diagnosed, have already been diagnosed, that was a real perspective for me, where it's like, right, I've had this idea for so long, what are you gonna do about it? So I kind of incorporated the business shortly after, spoke to some food scientists about putting a recipe together. Well, first and foremost, answering the questions I were asking, mm. is it possible? Mm. And if it is possible, why is it not being done before? And they couldn't come back with any kind of reasonable argument against doing something like this. So I pushed ahead with it, working at the, at the time I was working for a Brazilian bank, kind of a laid back kind of atmosphere with kind of the South American kind of attitudes, which allowed me to be able to concentrate a little bit more time and, and effort, which I would have done for like a normal conventional banking job. Um, I kind of got everything in place and launched it at a trade show, like a soft launch, wallpaper table, bed sheet over the top of it, a couple of kilner jars, we were hand wrapping the labels. This is the first time, that moment was the first time I actually tried the bottles, it got delivered in directly from the lab. We had to label all the bottles, we only had about 10 labels. So everybody wants to take samples and it's like, I've only got 10 like labeled samples at the moment. But it was a question, then it was like, do I quit my job? Do you understand the concepts of what I'm trying to push to you in terms of amino acids? Do you understand the flavors? Do you like the flavors? Is it something you'd buy? And we sold like 2000 bottles in two days. We had a lot of the big retailers, WH Smith's, Holland and Barrett, uh, Waitrose all interested from the outset. With the way that my contract was structured in the bank, I had to quit. There was you can't there was no middle ground. Sure. So it was kind of like it kind of I'd advise any entrepreneur going into this kind of situation, try and take as much risk off the table as you can before you actually make the plunge properly. But I'd also say my situation where I had to quit just due to the nature of the contract went in my favour because I had to concentrate on it. And it's almost like do or die from like the outset. You, you have to be able to make this work to survive rather than you find a lot of people that kind of meander through where they're spending like an evening or a weekend here and there. And it's kind of like an all or nothing kind of thing. And it certainly was for me from the outset. It was never made to be a hobby business. It was always made to scale and by the, the, the structure of the business in terms of the contract packing, the minimum orders, the kind of warehouse facilities we were using. It was never meant to be a, a food market kind of thing. It was always meant to be a, a mass market. Concept. Okay. Okay. And you mentioned from day one, really, you seem to be attractive uh, to the retailers, like Holland and Barrett. You mentioned. Why do you think that was so early, and, and such um, a, a, I guess, a basic minimal setup? Uh, what What was the thing that really attracted them? Demand for innovation. Okay. Um, I think they've kind of found the bigger retailers that the likes of the Coca Colas of the world and the Britvics can't innovate as fast as we can. Bearing in mind that Coca Colas only just launched an energy drink, and energy drinks have kind of been around for twenty years. For them, there's that demand, but also from a consumer perspective that those retailers are trying to service, they want traceability, they want sustainability, they want challenges, they want innovation, they want something new. People are now looking at the underlying ingredients and the macro ingredients of some of these brands that they've been having for, for decades and actually questioning what these ingredients that they never read before and understand are all around. So actually that level of transparency you get, plus the innovation, is kind of what's driving the growth. Bearing in mind, as a smaller fledging businesses are responsible for more than half the growth in FMCG, it kind of speaks volumes in terms of innovation of what we can do and how nimble we can turn new concepts around and, and, and cater for the needs of the consumer faster than the bigger guys that they can do, which 
with the level of bureaucracy that goes through the larger organisations is kind of a big barrier to entry in that kind of regard for those bigger companies. Okay, and so at that first event, let's say Holland and Barrett, as an example, approached you. Did you have a considered strategy to follow that um, in terms of stocking into these retailers? Like, did you want to stock at independence first and then follow up to the larger supermarkets, or what was the approach? <laughs> Looking back now, it was pretty sporadic. Okay. I think for a brand like ours, launching innovation, you've kind of got to find an area of the market where it sticks. So yeah, great, if you can launch in somewhere that's that's enormous straight away, fantastic. Mm. But realistically, you've got one bullet in the gun. If it doesn't work in an area like that, then you're never gonna get invited back after another six months or 18 months to try again. They've kind of had the opportunity and it's gone. Mm. So for us, even though we were talking to the big retailers from the very outset, we didn't get into any of the big retailers from the beginning. It probably took us the best part of 18 months before we launched in John Lewis and Holland and Barrett, which kind of represented our first big stockists. <clears throat> Aside from that, we just went after the kind of, we went after quite a lot of different stuff in, in central London from convenience to cafes and delis to gyms and kind of anything that was in between that health shops, for example. And it was like, great, let's go after these different areas, but let's find where it sticks and let's find the areas where we're getting the rate of sale, where we're acquiring customers. And the area for us was like kind of like the boutique gyms. So you're talking like your BXRs, um, you've got the kind of different, kind of those kind of top level gyms where you may be paying a couple of hundred pounds for membership. And for us, those kind of people were looking much closely at the diet and what they take in terms of nutritional value versus kind of like the, the convenience end of the market where they're probably just going in there and picking up the big brands without even thinking or just simply bottled water. And that's where we kind of made it stick and we, and we created like a credibility piece within there, which meant that we could give other retailers an idea about what we could create. And by, because we were in the local gym, the same customers also shopped in the local cafes and delis in that kind of area and it kind of grew out from there systematically. Kind of coincidentally as well, it's not like we, we actually went after that that's just simply where it worked in certain areas and more people heard about in certain areas and districts within London and we kind of carried on growing out of that. Okay. And then John Lewis came knocking. We've been speaking to John Lewis from the very first trade show back in 2015 and it took us until 2017 to get that over the line when we just needed someone to champion us in one of these big stores. And mm. that's what any kind of brand's looking for, someone who takes a chance on someone because there is an element of sheet mentality where people want to see credibility and strong rates of sales somewhere else to take some risk off the table for them to then launch it in their own retail outlets. But at the same time, it's you need someone to be the first mover in this. And that was John Lewis for us who launches into the, the Oxford Circus um, food hall. And it kind of just it kind of all aligned after that really okay, for us. Very good. What were your biggest challenges in that initial startup phase? And how did you deal with them? I think everything's a challenge. Um, we had a number of problems with product. We had a number of recalls in the first year, yeah. which if you don't have a product, then you don't have anything to sell, then you have nothing to survive off. So that really brought the business to its knees a couple of times in the first year. We were then the victim of a scam as well in, the, in our first year as well. So not only were the two product recalls, which cost us about 40,000 units, which is a large proportion of any kind of startup business. Sure. But when we, when we got back on our feet again, we were also a victim of a scam of, of a company that we trusted to get us around Europe. Which it, was, it was elaborate, cost us a lot of time and a lot of money, which then essentially brought the business to its knees at the end of 2016. So that was a real challenge. We managed to survive long enough to launch a crowdfund, which we did in 2017, which essentially saved the business. Okay. Um, it was a case of we had nothing already pre-raised in a, in a, in a crowdfunding round, which is unheard of these days. 
I'm putting it to the people, my extended network to be able to invest in the business is what saved us essentially. Okay, and in terms of your mindset, like going through that period and taking them knocks like one after the other, like how did you deal with that internally, I suppose? Um, I've kind of, I'm kind of resilient kind of character. Um, I don't really, I don't really get too high on, on achievements and I don't really get too low on when things go wrong. And I think that kind of level playing field works better when you, tr it is a roller coaster being an entrepreneur and there's some big, big highs, but there's some big, big lows. And if you take the, the, the highs with anything less than being humbled, then you kind of get carried away with your own success. But equally, if you take your lows with it's a persecution kind of way, then you just end up, like going round up. And round in, yeah, you're going round yeah. and round in circles and not actually achieving anything, but actually being level-headed through all of that allows you to be clear-headed to actually deal with the challenges of what you've got because there's challenges on failure and there's challenges with success. And even for us launching a major retailer now, I don't really get time to celebrate it because the biggest problem is for then, for us to try and produce enough stock and be able to deal with the forecasting of making sure we've got enough in a warehouse to be able to service them based on having no historic data, for example, sure. and which is another headache. So even for us, even looking back at 2016, there were challenges, but even now in 2019 and coming to 2020, there are also challenges that just kind of align themselves in different kind of ways. Sure, and I guess a big challenge currently is you're growing quite quickly, uh, nationally and internationally. So how are you dealing with the scale-up process? And I guess cash flow in particular for a product is, yeah. is quite important, obviously, but um, quite a challenge to, to continue to, to deal with. Yeah, so this but is kind of where we are now. It's kind of like the pinch point where we could really explode the business and really grow some, a hell of a lot of, of growth through our, our distribution of what we've currently got. But also the basis of what you're trying to do as a business is produce enough stock to be bought at any given stage for you to carry on growing. Ooh. And if anything, you have to run the business inefficiently, which is kind of against everything you kind of want to do because you have to hold more stock than you necessarily need to be able to deal with peaks and troughs of demand. But in that kind of situation, you've got most of your actual working capital sat in a warehouse rather than sat in your bank account where you're looking to invest in areas like human resource or marketing or channel expansion, these other kind of areas that you need to keep investing in as you keep growing. Ooh. So even where we are now, we're somewhat overstretched in terms of resource and what we can actually get around. I've, I've done most of this myself and it's always just been a case of me working harder to keep up with things. It's now getting to the stage where it's not physically possible to keep this unsustainable kind of way of working going, but also you're in this catch-22 situation where you need more money to grow, but you need more growth to get more money. Mm. And you kind of repeat that situation over and over again. So it's trying to break down that vicious circle. Okay, and then how do you forecast demand then? With, I guess so many stockists, like how do you know what is, how do you know the peaks and troughs, for example? Yeah, it's difficult. Yeah. For example, like in 2019, we had a very warm February. Mm. So all of a sudden, even if you want to compare historical data, then it's, it's completely worthless. And there's so much noise around these kind of areas. You kind of know if you're going to do a promotion that you're probably going to see a decent uptick in sales. But you've got so many other things that come into it from 2018 where we had a great World Cup and a great summer. Like those sales through there, that was really the problem, trying to keep up with the actual sales. Versus like this year where if, you, if you'd have predicted what the forecast of growth was going to be during that kind of time, you'd have been completely wrong because summer was pretty much subdued. Sure. So it's kind of like, I don't ever book more than one production run in advance. It's kind of like, right, let's get this one in, let's see where we, we stand after that. We can kind of get a feel for things and I try and book things in just in time as much as I can. Mm. But that also means just in time is usually just out of time in some instances as okay. well.
Okay, risky. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it is risky. It's, but it's very tricky. If you're managing the cash of the business, which essentially I'm mandated to do, yeah, I'd love to be able to put three or four months worth of stock or equivalent in there, just in case we have a one big month. Sure. We realistically can't do that. Sure. And it's trying to make ends meet where we can in the same kind of situation. Okay. And where do you see your growth going from now? Do you see yourself expanding further internationally? Or um, so we don't really do anything internationally. So okay. we, we do very little. Uh, for us, we've got so much on what we're doing at the moment from a, a UK perspective, that's taken our concentration. In for us, we're not actively going out there looking for new stockists per se, but we are looking to increase the distribution of what we've already got. Okay. Bearing in mind we are limited resource in terms of human and marketing and everything else that comes with it. I, I want to concentrate on what we've got at hand now and making sure that that works in order for us to carry on growing through that. We've got some plans for MPD in 2020 as well. So you'll find there's an element of growth through what we already have and also moving into into new areas for, from a product perspective as well. Okay, so your strategy really is to focus on UK for the foreseeable future? I think focus is a strategy more than anything else. Make sure we nail what we've got, sure. rather than trying to overstretch into new areas without really getting a grasp of what we've currently got current sure. on that hand. Okay, very good. So what is your really, um, I guess, five, 10 year plan for the, for the business? What is your vision kind of going forward? Um, where we are now, we are a, a drinks business per se. Uh, I want to become much more of a health and wellbeing business. We kind of have a versatile brand in rejuvenation and I want to be able to open that up into different areas within the supermarket, but also into different kind of channels as well. So we want to become much more of a, an encompass brand rather than simply a drinks brand. Okay. Um, longer term, it really is to give the brand every opportunity to grow. A, an entrepreneur or a, a business like ours that's kind of going stepping stone by stepping stone does need to get the support of the bigger kind of monopolistic brands within our market to really give it some extra lifeblood when we can take the business as far as we can. So okay. I'd say probably five to 10 years, we've got to feasibly look at exit to another, another larger business, FMCG business in particular, to be able to make sure that the brand fulfills its potential. Okay, interesting. And I know you've been pretty outspoken on Brexit in, in the past. How has that uncertainty impacted your business uh, and your plans and how have you dealt with that within the business? Um, I don't think it's really, I think the only kind of thing that's impacted for us is the currency valuations when we've got part of our overall operation in, in Europe. Every time the, the pound depreciates, then we have to pay a little bit more for every production run that we go through. We, we're not big enough to be able to hedge against those kind of things. Um, but I, that's, everyone's kind of hitting hitting the uncertainty as, as a negative from one perspective, but even talking about the currency differentials, it makes our products much cheaper for our European counterparts to be able to pick up. So when we've been going on trade missions with the UK government into different kind of EU regions, it's still very much business as usual. And for those kind of guys who see it as an opportunity, if they can buy a product for 20% less than they could do a year ago, then there's the opportunity to go in there and put a product like ours on the shelf. And regardless of whatever happened with Brexit then, you're going to be going, it's going to be a very ballsy retailer that decides to take a product off a shelf that's been bought readily by their customers. So actually it was very much a case of there are opportunities mixed in with these, um, there are opportunities mixed in with these threats I'd say the bigger picture is brands like us, we're, we're always looking for investment and we're always looking to grow. And from, a, from an investor perspective, would they really want to invest in a business or part with the money in a situation through political stress with kind of EU stress, with Brexit stress all at the same time? 
or should they wait six to 12 months to find out how the, lay, the lie of the land lays mm. in that kind of time and then invest, mm. even though there's an immediate need from companies like us for that kind of investment. So I'd say that lack of investment that's coming through is affecting a lot of businesses like ours, which you've kind of seen in the last probably six months where there's, there's quite a lot of stress going on from FMCG businesses, big businesses, smaller businesses, and from a high street perspective as well, even all the way through to restauranteurs. You've got to look at what's the underlying reasons for that. and people don't like, like uncertainty. So I'd say it's kind of an indirect cause through Brexit that's been pushing that. Okay, but you yourself, you tried to take the opportunity and take the positives yeah. out of it, if, if any. Some, some people seem to have used it as an excuse, Yeah. while other people have kind of gotten with it. We've actually expanded our business to Europe mm-hmm. in 2019, which is kind of the peak of the economic stress and political stress as well at the same time. Because as a business, we need lifeblood, we need to keep growing. There's mm. no point standing still and waiting to see what comes out of it. Because the likelihood is, it's gonna be three to five years to find out exactly what's gonna happen anyway. And you just can't stand on the, on the sidelines waiting to see what happens, you've got to carry on growing. People still need drinks, people still need foods. Nothing's gonna change in that kind of regard. The proposition might change somewhat to be able to deal with those kind of different pivots in how people are looking at these kind of demand orientations. but. For us, it's very much being business as usual. Sure, okay. And I'd like to talk about um, funding and a particular crowdfunding to start with, because I know you've, you've done it a couple of times with varying degrees of success. Sure. What's your opinion of that um, funding model and have you seen it change over time? You think it's a changing landscape? Yeah, I think the goalposts have moved in terms of crowdfunding. Okay. Um, I've seen, I keep an eye on crowdfunding a lot. I've, I've seen a lot of similar businesses go through this with varying degrees of success. But when we did our crowdfunding in 2017, we didn't have anything pre-funded. We went to market looking for 150K and day, day zero, it was zero. <clears throat> While you find a lot of businesses now that are launching between 75 and 85, 90% already funded, and they kind of limp over the line at the very end. Mm. I think from an investor perspective, there's been very few exits. So even the big guys like the brew dogs, great, you've made a lot of paper millionaires, but those people haven't necessarily been paid out. And you've seen the guys Brewdog keep coming back for more and more money. Mm. Then you've got the other end of the spectrum where you've seen smaller brands, they've taken money off the table back in 2013, 14. And from an investor, it's petty cash. It's kind of like, great, I wanna be involved in an adventure for a business like this, I wanna follow it. From a consumable product, the same, they wanna have a, they wanna see something on shelf and feel part of something, but they've not really been exits to be able to put that cash back in the investor's pocket to go again. So you're, trying to fa- you're finding now that investors that like the idea of crowdfunding have already like tapped out on the maximum amount of money they want to put in there. So you, you're just kind of using crowdfunding as a glorified admin platform rather than necessarily the, the means that it was to start with where you can get your individual investors to come in. So for us, 2017, that's how it worked. We launched one in 2018 in a similar kind of vein with a very small amount pre-raised. And it went nowhere, so we closed it after like a couple of weeks and just did a private round instead. Okay. So I think that's kind of what's been happening with crowdfunding just recently. Unless you're going to have a hundred percent already pre-funded, and you want to use it from from an admin perspective and a marketing perspective, then great. But if you want to use it as a feasible means of raising funding, that kind of feasibility is going out the window a little bit. Okay. And what about from the marketing perspective? Have you found that your investors on the crowdfunding platform have been good brand ambassadors and they've raised the profile of the brand? Yeah, absolutely. Have, okay. um, I, it's how you, it kind of comes back to me and how you use these these people. These people want to be involved. They want to feel part of something. It's sure. kind of like building a tribe more than building a, 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 a community. And for us, keeping them regularly up to date, I usually send out a newsletter on, once a month to talk about what's going on. 
the pros and the cons so it's not necessarily a PR newsletter it's these are the sticking points these are the issues that we're having but these are this is what we've done on the other side of things and it really lets the investors feel involved and on that side if I want them to do anything if we're going through a if we're looking at getting a new listing and we want to get some more momentum in a certain area in a certain market in a certain retailer then I can simply ask them to where possible go in there and drive demand and spread the message in those kind of areas which which helps back the business in that side okay. so for us we've got a tribe of 350 investors now that you look at kind of my email rate opens it's over 50 percent which is massive in compared to normal newsletters okay so those people are following you quite diligently okay and it's a communication channel going the other way as well are Absolutely. they giving you feedback on, on product yeah as well? a lot of feedback okay. um they're the guys that get my product first so when we first launched the cans for example we sent all the all the boxes out to those guys very good so they feel part of what we're doing and feel like they're part of the process those guys are coming back to me on a constant basis i have coffees where i can and beers where i can with with my investors to keep in, I want them to feel part of what we're doing. And there's nothing like being, feeling disconnected from a FTSE 100 company. We don't want to be something like that. We want to be part of an engaging community that not only has customers and investors, but also ambassadors. And that word of mouth that can spread a brand like us to areas that we won't be able to get to necessarily. Okay, interesting. And in terms of the current marketplace, like I guess you're pitching yourself in the health space in particular. Do you see that still as a niche space or do you see it kind of moving into mass market? I'd say that I've always been looking at mass market okay. as a whole. Like we kind of launched as an amino acid drink and that quickly became much more plant-based orientation around the kind of drivers that were in the market around veganism and also people looking at what nutrition they're actually getting through these kind of big branded products, which isn't necessarily what they always thought they were getting. But for us, it always been, yes, it's, it's kind of like a niche concept that people are starting to now understand from an amino acid perspective, mm. but we always wanted to be rejuvenation, as in it's got something for everybody and rejuvenation does actually mean different things to different people from the number of sampling sessions that we've done. There's certainly a, a wide array of different definitions that people put on something like rejuvenation, but it's a mass market kind of definition that we're certainly looking sure. after. So I guess it's quite tricky finding that balance in terms of your messaging that you don't want to come across as intimidating or super niche yeah. if you are trying to attract mass market. Well, that's what we were trying to do from the first instance. Amino acid had always been quite intimidating. It had always yeah. been a gym orientation, a bodybuilder. You have your 25 egg whites and have your amino acids at the same time. And what I want to do was remove that stigma to say, actually, you don't have to be an elite athlete. You don't have to be a, someone who goes to the gym seven times a week. You can just be Joe Bloggs who's commuting every day, finding life in itself struggle and actually looking at their own diet and their own health and well-being around keeping fit around doing the commute in the morning around feeling run down from working too hard and actually engaging with that side of things is much more mainstream than it is simply targeting the gyms because i could have done that quite easily and put loads of caffeine in there mm. and called ourselves like a pre-workout or a post-workout drink but for me I, I tried to bridge the gap between that and kind of without alienating other customers that just simply want something that, that tastes good, that's healthy and functional at the same time. Okay, so to achieve that perception, I guess it, it comes, it's everything really, it's products, labeling, social media, marketing, yeah. it's, it's throughout everything. Completely, and even okay. things like Great Taste Awards, right? You're thinking about that kind of stigma and even having a Great Taste Award, which is more artisan yeah. than it is kind of niche bodybuilder side of things that kind of brought down some of the barriers as well when we started talking about amino acids. Okay. So it's it's that kind of, you need focus of a brand, but you also need to ensure that 
the messages coming through without having the, the, the stigma of what people believe amino acids to be. Actually, when you look into amino acids in a much greater depth, there's many more. That, that kind of recovery after the gym is only one element of it. it. It moves into all sorts of different fields that can impact you on a day-to-day -day life as well. Okay. And how does your NPD process work and your recipe development process work then uh, if you're attracting that mass market? Are you doing lots of tasting sessions, etc.? or um, how do you approach that? So for me, I don't really believe in doing taste tests. Okay. I believe that if you're in that kind of situation when you're launching a new product to the market, getting it out there and it being a continuous improvement kind of situation. Even for example with us, we use um, a natural sweetener in our original bottle drink in the still waters and we found that maybe 20% of people actually found stevia to taste artificial rather than to taste sweet. Okay. So for us, we'd taken that feedback that we built across three years and we applied that to our new cans and we'd taken out, there is, we put a little bit of beet sugar in because essentially our taste buds over thousands of years have been trained to taste sugar for what it actually is mm. rather than artificial sweeteners. So for us, we actually went back to nature, which is kind of booked the trend of what we're doing, but we wanted to develop something that is made for human palate and mm. that's, what we, that's what we focused on. But for us, if you go out to the market with your, your taste tests and you start going after focus groups, you don't necessarily get what the brain's saying, you get what the mouth's trying to think that the brain's saying. And from a point of sale perspective, actually if something tastes great in a focus group, in a room on its own, how's that actually gonna sell on shelf? Okay. And for us, we launched our initial brand in like white packaging. And the times we were doing sampling in John Lewis, people liked the drink and they went over to the fridge to buy it and you could see them running their hands up and down the shelf trying to find the brand. So they couldn't actually see it, even okay. if we're there with it. So we had to change the brand in, in order for it to stand out in those kind of fixtures, because there's a lot of loud brands. There's a lot of bright lights, there's a lot of mirrors, and actually it's easy to get lost in that kind of thing. So even if it does taste great, which a focus group would have told you, actually does that actually convert into a sale? Sure. And sometimes there's a big disconnect between those two things. Interesting. I was gonna ask, uh, competing with brands, in particular the bigger brands out there, um, must be quite challenging to kind of make that noise and to kind of attract people over them, well-established brands that they're familiar with. Yeah, I'd, I'd say so, but I'd also say, thinking from a consumer perspective, they want different. Yeah. And thinking from a retail perspective, if they just keep launching these big brands in there, where's the growth gonna come from? They're looking at single-digit growth, while when we launch in there, we can grow double-digit month by month. Okay. And for them, they're looking for something different. From a retail perspective, they're trying to differentiate from each other and trying to find their own USP. That's why they focus so much more on innovation and looking for healthier, different options. Okay. And certainly from a consumer perspective, they're also kind of lacking trust with the bigger brands that have kind of pushed the marketing onto people these days. Well, in this kind of environment now where we have search engines where people can go away and do their own research or social media where people can make their own assumptions without having things pushed down the throat, you're finding there's a bit of a backlash away from the bigger brands in that kind of area as well. Interesting, okay. And have you found your own social media to be very impactful on the business? Uh, yes and no. Okay. I think social media within, within itself has changed a lot over like the four years. Mm. Once upon a time it used to be you launch something and people follow you and jump on the bandwagon. Instagram and these Facebooks have now realized that they, they need to revenue, they need a revenue stream from what they're doing there. So it becomes much more pay to play. Mm. And that where once upon a time, social media kind of leveled out the playing field between the big brands and the smaller <coughs> brands. It's now getting into a situation where the bigger pockets dominate more of social media than they do the smaller brands. 
and we're, we're kind of back full circle again. But then that just means you've got to get more creative. You've got to be more engaging. Sure. And for me, there's a bigger argument now to say that you need to be more engaging offline than you need to be online. And actually, influencers, it's almost like a generation game of products going past them on any given stage. <coughs> Consumers have wised up to that now and mm. realize that that's not natural and organic from these kind of influencers. They're getting paid to do that. And there's much more transparency through that. But actually, if your PT or your nutritionist or someone on, in your office is drinking one of our drinks, there's much more gravitas with something like that than seeing it, sat, somebody sat on the garden wall with a can saying, I drink this every morning and I feel great. Sure. So for me, there's much more you can do from an experiential perspective rather than just purely social as well. Okay. And obviously we've seen um, consumers purchasing habits change and move more online throughout many different sectors. Um, how important has your online business been and what is I guess what is the, the split what is the balance and where do you see it going in the future yeah I'd say not very okay we do very little online we're much more of a grab-and-go product so it's very much a here and now kind of product you, mm. you've seen these online retailers try and move towards that mm. but when you're dealing with food and drink when it's an immediate need and an impulse then buying a case of 12 or 24 online that's going to get delivered in 24 or 48 hours isn't dealing with the need of the consumer of what we've been catering for okay Going forward, we were going to launch some lines that are much more D to C than relying on actual shelf space. So I believe when you're launching MPD, you've got to be careful about cannibalization. Launching more and more new flavors of the same products will just lead to a share of the revenue being split over a number of different products rather than driving real innovation. So for us, hence I went from bottles and then we've got the cans, we've got still, we've got sparkling. We're catering for new people and new customers from that customer acquisition perspective. Okay. And our next product will be a greater extension of that as well. So we're moving to different areas as well. Okay, very good. So it'd be great to finish on just a couple of questions, just in terms of advice. And first of all, what advice would you give yourself, let's say the 18 year old Chris, knowing what you know now and what you've, you've been through <laughs> in terms of your entrepreneurial experience? Um, I'd say do it sooner, but I also going back to the kind of perfect storm of what it is today, then I don't think we necessarily got the gravitas that we've got today if we'd have launched it two or three years earlier. Okay. I think it was a perfect time to launch in what we were doing. I'd say more focus, maybe not to my 18 year old self, but maybe my 29 year old self when I first launched it. Focus on what the brand is, focus on where you want to sell it and allow it then to waterfall into other areas. Don't try and buy off more than you can chew in those kind of areas because there's a lot of wasted time. Like, Don't get me wrong, launching a business, you have to you have to learn, you have to adapt and there's no non-executive director and there's no book you can read to actually teach you about these lessons more than actually going out there and doing it yourself. You have to see it firsthand. Sure. So for us, it's as much as I'd um, look back, it'd, all be, it'd always be with hindsight and not necessarily going through those learning experiences myself. I think where we are now and going through the learning experiences, I could do it much better next time. But that's not to say that what we've learned through this process has allowed us to get to this point now where we've got a great opportunity to carry on doing what we're doing to a much greater level of what we're doing currently. Okay, interesting. And would you have any specific advice for somebody looking to launch a drink product into the market today? Yeah, don't. Really? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, even from that perspective, I think the market's changed. Okay. I think 2016 was a great year for us because people wanted innovation. There was a lack of products innovating and that allowed us to go in there and offer something different. The issue is now, people are looking at our experience and a lot of the brands experience that came through that same kind of alumni of like 2015-16 where we went out there in London we seeded our brand 
everyone's now trying to do that. So these areas, these kind of food halls, your cafes, your delis, your gyms, have been inundated by these smaller brands going in there and and giving them free stock to be able to get some momentum going in there and some credibility and it becomes more expensive. While these guys are buying from us, these new guys have given away for free. And we've experienced this firsthand within central London where we're going after new stockists a year ago. People were take, happy to take free stock from you, but then wanted more free stock from a different business the next year. Mm. And they realized, don't get me wrong, I understand why these cafes and delis are trying to survive themselves in this kind of harsh environment. Mm. That was a revenue stream which they could pick up quite easily and that they're actually satisfying innovation and novelty from their customers, it just makes it very difficult from a food or drink perspective when you're trying to make that initial revenue to keep ticking over and keep the business growing, and they're just giving away free stuff. And it's you've got to make ends meet as a small business growing in these kind of areas. Giving away free stuff is it's gonna you're gonna be a victim of your own success yeah. within that kind of area. Okay. Um, take more money than what you actually need. If there's money there on the table to take in terms of investment, take more of it than you need to start with. Because that's one thing that I've done throughout is I'm not taking enough money at, at certain pinch points of the business. Sure. I've done a series of smaller rounds and I've always had a round of funding open, which hasn't really allowed me to take a chunk and allowed me to plan, say, for 18 months. I've only really had six months to plan out what I need to do, which doesn't lend towards planning for human resource, doesn't really plan for, for marketing or sales strategy. You've got to kind of take it as it comes and it's kind of... It doesn't allow you to concentrate on growing a brand when you're actually concentrating on getting the next pound through the door in order to survive. Sure. So if you have ability to be able to take more money to start with, sure, it's going to involve a little bit more dilution, but it also allows you to grow to a much greater extent for your next funding round where you can take even more money at a greater valuation and reduce dilution. Okay. Because as much as people get caught up with dilution, sure, get diluted by 20 or 30% in your first round, but if you get diluted by less than that, you're only going to be diluted in these stepping stone funding rounds you need to do to get to where you needed to get to if you'd have taken a greater amount of money in the, in the very outset. Okay, and what would you say, so if free stock is not kind of the best way to do it, what would you say is the best way to gain some traction at the well, beginning? Well, that's, that's a problem. So yeah. when we went round there and we were, we were selling to these places, people would buy it as a trial. Now people are wanting free stock for a trial because okay. there's so many brands knocking on the door. Okay. They can ask these kind of, mm these kind of gumption questions and these big brands desperate to try and get some shelf space and some credibility mm. even like Selfridges and Whole Foods and those kind of places once upon a time they were the hub of innovation and now they've kind of like got so overwhelmed with new products that when a what used to happen was a business that was in Whole Foods would go to Tesco or go to a Waitrose and say look this is what we're doing in, in Whole Foods now it's kind of like the market norm so it's kind of difficult to try and differentiate yourself in those kind of areas. Okay. Creating a D2C kind of channel allows you to be able to do that and allow to get to customers straight away without relying on retailers in between. Sure. So maybe look at that, but you've got to, it's all product dependent, depending on what kind of product you got and what you're trying to get into. Okay. Trying to find a way to differentiate yourself, but cash is king at the end of the day. As much as you'd love to give away loads of free product to get loads of free shelf space, <coughs> it's not sustainable in the long term. Essentially, you need to change that into a money-making scheme eventually. Okay, tough business. Absolutely, yeah. but it, that's the biggest barrier to entry for us sure. is everyone's got ideas, but it's really difficult. Sure. And that allows us to say, right, great, we've got to this point, and that differentiates ourselves from a lot of other people that not being able to get it off the ground or find it really difficult, that first initial sticking point. Sure. We've kind of bypassed that. But that's not to say that we're just in, we're coming into different challenges, which they'll only experience if they jump over that first initial sticking point. Sure, sure. Very good. Well, you've done very well. And a uh, pleasure speaking to you. Thanks so very much. Best of luck in the future. Cheers. Thanks very much. Cheers.